from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hola from Brussels, and welcome to this episode of the CER's podcast. My name is Camino Martina Martinez. I'm the head of the CER's Brussels office. And today I'll be talking to our director, Charles Drantz, about one of the hottest topics of conversation in the EU bubble these days, the European Political Community, or EPC. If you've never heard of it, or if you think this is just another of those odd acronyms the European Union does so well, do not worry, we have you covered. In this episode, we'll be looking at the EPC's origins and answering that ever important question, why is this interesting? And especially, why is this interesting right now? Hello, Charles. Hi, Camino. So let's start from the beginning. What is the European political community? Well, this is an idea that Emmanuel Macron launched in a speech to the European Parliament in May for a new organization, not the European Union. It would include essentially all the European democracies. The purpose would be to get them together to talk about big strategic challenges that they face. And there's a number of rationales for it. One is that there was a feeling that the Balkan countries didn't have enough contact with the EU and Russia, China, and Turkey were becoming too influential in the Balkans. They needed to tighten ties to the Balkan countries that are not in the EU and not getting very close to membership of it. Uh, secondly, uh, and related to that, the, the neighborhood policy as a whole is regarded as not a great success. And at least those European countries that are neighbors needed to get closer to the EU. Linked to that, Ukraine, Moldova, perhaps Georgia countries also need to tighten their ties to the EU because they're not going to join it anytime soon. Then there's the issue of Turkey which its, its membership talks with the EU ran into the ground many years ago and have got nowhere and are going nowhere. So you need to find some way of creating links to Turkey. And then, of course, there's the British problem. I know that President Macron was quite keen to find a means of socialising the British so that they don't lose touch with their European partners, their erstwhile partners, and so that they, they stay in touch and can learn what's going on in the EU and, and vice versa. People in Paris tell me they're worried that they just don't know what's happening in Britain now because they don't meet British officials or ministers in the way that they used to on a regular basis. So for all these rather diverse and different reasons, Macron felt he should try and create a new organization. So he launched it on May the 9th in, in Strasbourg. And uh, the first meeting will be in Prague on October the 6th. Hmm. It's not a new idea, right? This is not something that Macron has just taken of its magic hats, is it? Well, it's, it's, it's not entirely new, no. I mean, certainly it, it is influenced, I think, by President Mitterrand's idea of 1989, December 1989, for a European confederation that would be a looser structure than the European Union, that would, uh, that would have included Russia, and which is why it didn't go down very well with the Central and East European countries. And it was, was still born because those countries wanted to actually join the EU rather than go into a sort of something that wasn't the, the EU. And indeed, the relationship between enlargement and such concepts is, is, is a difficult one. Um, I think there, there is a certain view in Paris that was initially that one of the purposes of the European political community would be to 
frankly be an alternative to enlargement to get to reach out and give some money and some ties and some linkages to these countries that aren't going to join the EU anytime soon, perhaps as an alternative, but at least the initial version of the EPC launched by Macron in May was ambiguous on this question. He didn't, didn't exactly say whether it was an alternative to enlargement or not, but the reaction was so hostile in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and indeed the Germans were not very happy because they weren't consulted before the initiative either. And many people thought it was an alternative to enlargement. So Macron, within a few days, clarified, no, this is not about saying, let's do this instead of enlargement. Let's do this as a complement to enlargement. You can Enlargement basically is moving at a slow pace, even if you're optimistic. So let's do something now to bring the Turks and the Balkans and the Ukrainians and the Brits around the table as soon as we can to discuss strategic challenges like what do we do about Russia? What do we do about energy security? What do we do about common infrastructure problems? We could also talk about issues like migration and other common challenges where the EU on its own isn't big enough and doesn't have the scope to sort of sort out the whole continent-wide problems that the European countries face. Why was he doing it now, Camille? I think he was doing it now, this initiative, because, because the war in Ukraine made it obvious that we need to bring the European countries that share common democratic values closer together so we are stronger together and so we are more roughly aligned in our policies and attitudes and approaches. And I think that, you know, that's where we get back to the British issue. I think, you know, having the British not closely engaged with their European partners when Russia is threatening the whole continent is not a good idea. And Macron's looking for ways to associate the British. He did actually come up, of course, with a few years ago with something called a, a European Security Council. That, that he, he did suggest an idea that a new body that should include the British and the most important European countries, but that was still born because the British were not very interested and the smaller countries of the EU didn't like it being left out of it either. So that was still born and he's come back with this new idea instead of the European political community, which seems to be working better and seems to have got more support from member states. Yeah, if there is one thing we can say about Mr. Macron is that he's short on ideas. Um, then not all of these ideas, as you, as you said before, uh, end up happening and not all of them are well received in Brussels and other EU capitals. You talked about Germany and Berlin being disappointed for not having been consulted uh, on the EPC. Uh, so how did other countries um, take Macron's ideas and, and, and what do they think now? Well, Macron is a very creative individual. He has, he's brimming with ideas, like he's really a kind of grand think tanker in a way. The tr trouble is that he doesn't always... Um, prepare the ground when he launches ideas. So where, for example, when he had an initiative three years ago to bring Russia in from the cold, he didn't consult the Germans in advance. And the initiative was treated with a lot of mistrust and hostility by his fellow member states, uh, by the other member states. Uh, and th this time again, he didn't talk to the Germans, at least not, not significantly so before it was launched. So they were initially rather uninterested in it, though they've come round. And I think Schultz made a speech in Prague in September where he basically said he supported the European political community. I think the, the Nordic, Baltic, Polish governments were initially hostile because they, they understood that the, some people in Paris saw this as an alternative to enlargement. But when Macron reassured them that it was not, they rather grudgingly went along with it. And I think they, they, they'll all turn up in Prague on October the 6th. Some of them a bit a bit reluctantly, grumbling rather. But but you know Macron is a very influential guy. He although he annoys people a lot, he does have a lot of clout in the European Union. He's got the Brussels institutions very much lined up with him. Indeed, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, has been putting forward similar ideas for Macron to Macron and is supporting Macron's initiative. 
and Ursula von der Leyen, who is very close to Macron, although perhaps the Commission would not be very happy with this initiative if it turns out to be more intergovernmental and not a very communitaire organisation. We'll come back to that, Camino. Ursula von der Leyen has nevertheless been supportive. So nobody's offering serious opposition to it, though some are more enthusiastic than others. Of course, at this stage, and we're talking about the fact that uh, the European political community at this stage is basically a high level meeting of heads of states and government in Prague. So it's it's difficult to oppose um, such a thing, I would say, uh, from the Commission or other parts of uh, the European Union decision making machinery. But um, so for what you tell me, um, I understand that different countries have different ideas uh, about what the EPC should be. So we talked about how um, Central and Eastern European member states and the Baltics are not necessarily interested in the EPC becoming um, sort of an indefinitely uh, indefinite limbo where one can park, so to speak, um, candidate countries. Um, others um, might be more interesting, interested in having uh, the EPC being a forum of discussion on defense, energy, you mentioned migration as well. So what, what are the alternative visions that member states and even the Commission and, and the European Council uh, president might have on how the EPC should work? Well, there are essentially two schools of thought on how the EPC should work both of which are represented within the French government, in fact, as, as well as amongst the member states and the European institutions. Uh, one is that it should be a rather communitaire organization. The EU should be basically in charge. The commission should run the secretariats for it, that some of the uh, Balkan countries should get some of the benefits of membership through the EPC, even before they join the EU, that it should have quite a strong economic element to it. Maybe parts of the single market could be extended to neighbours of the European Union, that you would need some sort of quite strong institutional underpinning of, for the European political community. Now, th this, is, this, is, this is the sort of the communitaire version, so that the EU is very much in charge. The rival uh, school of thought is, no, hang on, if you make it communitaire, then the Brits and the Turks won't want to be involved because the EU would dominate it so much and the Brits and the Turks and others might feel that they would be very much second-class participants in this organization. So the second school of thought is, no, let's make it intergovernmental, rather like the G7 or the G20, with very light institutional structures, a, a talking shop where countries get together, issue declarations, certainly, but not have a kind of proper decision-making uh, authority or organization. Uh, and I think, my, my guess is that we're moving towards actually the, the, the second school of thought, because I think the arguments in favor of the second school of thought are, where it's a more strategic body and less less economic in its focus is probably very strong. If you if you want the British to take part, and if the British don't take part, then it will be less successful than if they do take part. So I, I, my guess is when Macron is leaning towards the second school of thought. But but of course we we've seen as uh, we as you know there's this interesting paper from John Pisani Ferry, Daniela Schwarzer, Shahin Valley, and Franz Mayer that Bruegel published recently the Brussels think tank, which is actually putting forward very much the first school of thought. So the first school of thought does have still many, many advocates and, and, and strong supporters. Yeah, talking about uh, that Bruegel paper, um, which I thought was really, really interesting, um, but also disagree on, on some points, and maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, I did see you tweeting about it, and it seemed to me that you also disagreed uh, with some of the suggestion. And so why is that? Well, the, firstly, the paper is a very interesting and thoughtful paper, and all the people who, who wrote it are eminent experts and academics who, who we, we know and respect greatly at the Centre for European Reform. 
I, I disagreed with some of their uh, thesis, though, because perhaps I'm, I'm showing my own national bias here, because I do think the British matter a bit. They don't talk much in their paper about the importance of getting the British into the EPC. They don't consider the, uh, what arguments might be going on in the British government as to whether or not it's worth Britain showing up. Uh, because if Britain believes that this is, an, an, as the Eurosceptics are saying within the United Kingdom, that this is a, a way of forcing the British back into some sort of EU-dominated structure, so we'll get lots of undo Brexit by the back door, then obviously the British aren't going to show up. And I, what I was concerned about in this Bruegel paper was the emphasis on strong institutions, a huge budget for the European political community, the Commission running the show, even qualified majority voting to take decisions, which of course the EU countries would have a majority and would take all the decisions and, and outvote the non-EU countries. And then even a treaty uh, linking the non-EU members with the European Union to establish how the uh, the EPC works. I think, frankly, if the Bruegel paper ends up being the model adopted by the European Union, then not just the Brits, but others like the Turks and some other countries will not want to take part. So I, I, I'm not a great fan of everything that the Bruegel paper came up with. You see, uh, one of the things that I was thinking, because obviously this paper, it's sort of the second attempt I, I have seen at um, shaping uh, the European political community in some form. Uh, the first one is um, Andrew Duff's uh, suggestion as well, which was indeed much more intergovernmental and uh, contained um, a part where you could actually also try and get uh, member states who currently are in the European Union, but may not be very esteemed, like um, Hungary, um, out um, to the European political community as well. So that was an interesting suggestion. Um, the Bruegel paper, to me, one of the mysteries that I think we need to be uh, decided as well, one of the questions more than a mystery, is about decision-making procedures. And you mentioned qualified majority voting. I was wondering whether when this paper and others mention qualified majority voting, they are not referring to a vote that is not necessarily one country, one vote, but perhaps they might have the European Union being as just one vote uh, when it comes to taking decisions, because otherwise, as you, as you say yourself, uh, the European Union being the biggest block uh, taking part in these uh, experiments would outvote any other country. So that wouldn't make a lot of um, sense. My other concern about the paper is that it talks a lot about reform and how the European political community can lead to um, treaty reform and to a, a bigger and more efficient European Union. But I fail to see the link in between such a sort of a structure European political community and the actual uh, step towards being a member of the European Union. Um, I did like the idea that they have of the European political community sort of being a forum for discussion of three main topics, which I think are very important, and especially right now with the war. Uh, these are obviously energy and climate, defense and democratic resilience and foreign security policy, and then the economic and social convergence. So I think these, these three topics are going to center and to focus minds uh, when it comes to the European political community. You did mention migration before, and we've been reading reports that uh, the, the UK government wants to have migration included as um, one of the points of discussion in the first meeting of the EPC. I wonder whether that's a priority here in Brussels. I don't think it is. Um, so I'm rather skeptical about the, the fact that uh, there will be much discussion over migration, or even if there is discussion on migration, uh, there will be much um, substance at all. Uh, but that's my, my, my take on this. 
what do you think would be a good measure of success for the European political community, Charles? Well, I think it'll succeed if countries in Europe think that they have to show up you know, maybe twice a year at head of government level to converse and exchange views on the very difficult challenges that all Europeans face together. I guess if there is some approximate alignment of attitudes and orientations towards big challenges like Russia and energy security and possibly migration as well, and some of the economic issues you mentioned, then that, that is a success. I guess it is, it is ultimately about values. If the EPC does help to ensure some alignment of values and, and so that the European countries understand that they do share common values and need to promote the, their values externally and internally, that would be helpful. There is, of course, the, the, the elephant in the room is the United States. And one reason why the Brits may be reluctant to show up is because the, it is not involving the United States. It's part of Macron's general thesis that although he's an Atlanticist in many respects, he does believe that Europeans need to develop what he calls strategic autonomy, or sometimes he calls it European sovereignty, and the Europeans need to be able to do more on their own with, without the US in case the US pulls back from the Atlantic relationship, which it almost did under Donald Trump and could conceivably do in the future under a, a Trump II presidency or, or a Trumpian presidency. Um, so I think you know that, that is one issue. The Americans are not involved, but I think it's easy enough for Macron and other European leaders like Schultz and von der Leyen to argue that the Europeans do need to, they have certain things in common, and while NATO is essential for their defense, and therefore the Americans are, should stay very much engaged in NATO, there are some issues where Europeans need to talk amongst themselves. Yeah, and some would argue as well that there are other fora of conversation with the United States about things like so defense, obviously we have NATO, uh, but also energy and the economy. We've got uh, the G7, the U20, uh, the UN, I know that this is not necessarily very active bodies sometimes, but I wonder from, from a European perspective, from the continent, um, whether, you know, this is an idea of a European political community, so some, some sort of European-based um, alliance of like-minded countries, whether including um, the US in those conversations would actually be a little bit beyond the scope. That's that's what what you know um, people in Brussels would tell you. But talking about including people, so we, we already talked about um, the UK and why involving the UK is important. Um, and I know uh, that this is a time where making predictions about the UK government is very difficult. But if you have if you had to take a guess, um, what do you think that the UK is going to participate uh, in the first meeting? And if not, is it possible that it participates at all in the future? Well, that's a really good question, Camino. And I think we're recording this on September the 29th. I was told yesterday by a Foreign Office official that they are on, they are on the brink of deciding whether to go or not. As you said, they seem to have set some conditions, some of which may be easy for Macron to meet, others harder to meet. Uh, I mean, just as by way of background, I did actually get the chance to talk to Liz Truss about the EPC at a conference in Paris two months ago. She was pretty hostile to the idea. She said to me then that uh, that uh, she said that the Brit Europe had a lot of organizations already, NATO, the Council of Europe, the OSCE, and it didn't need extra organizations. And those existing organizations should be made to work better before a new one was set up. So she, was, she started off from quite a hostile position, but I know for a fact that some of her most senior officials in the Foreign Office and in the Cabinet Office are advising her that she should go because they see the benefits of involving Britain in European conversations and rebuilding some bridges to our erstwhile partners in the EU. So I think she, you know, it's, it's touch and go whether she goes or not, but I think it, we can assume for the 
for, for the long term, Kamina, that Britain will be involved. If Liz Truss may not turn up to the first meeting, but she, if assuming the project works and is quite successful, there'll be very strong pressure to show up to the second meeting. And Britain's partners and allies, like Ukraine, like Turkey, will be pressing the British to, to show up, not just the EU countries. Uh, so I, th I think in the long run, uh, even if Trust boycotts the first meeting, Britain will be involved. And I think a Labour government, which, as, as we, at the time of we record this, looks quite plausible in a year or two because of the economic problems that the current Tory government faces, the Labour government would certainly want to take part. I have had my own conversations, which make me think they would be very keen to take part. So I think in the long run, Britain will be involved so as long as it works. And as I've already said, I think it's more likely to work if it pursues a relatively intergovernmental structure rather than rather than it becoming an organization that is run by the commission as an ex a sort of EU, EU light, an extension of the e EU. Right. Obviously, there is another um, model, which is uh, to start, you know, easy, so to speak, with an intergovernmental organization, as you say, forum of discussion, uh, not a lot of um, structures and new councils and things like that. And then moving along, depending on where the situation takes us um, when it comes to you, indeed a potential new uh, British government, but also where the war in Ukraine um, is in two years time, uh, what the situation of the country is, uh, what Russia means for Europe, because I think these are all questions um, that the EPC uh, is trying to answer. So I think it is very much uh, indeed a uh, work in progress at the moment. The first meeting happening in October, it's a big success, I think, of the, of the Czech uh, presidency of the Council of Ministers, uh, which was very interested in, in, in having this happening. Um, now it will also be up to the forthcoming presidencies and we have the Swedes and then we have the Spaniards, but then let's not forget that we will have the Hungarians as well. It's, it's up to them to actually also like try and, and keep this moving, right? So I, I think there's going to be a lot depending on the political will of uh, the different member states who, uh, who will be steering the wheel uh, in coming months. Anyway, Charles, uh, thank you very much for this conversation. I think that uh, we've clarified a lot what these um, strange three letters mean, EPC, European Political Community. Um, and I think that uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it. Uh, you wrote a very interesting uh, piece on it, um, if I'm correct, right after the summer, was it? Or right before it, the summer? I think, I think published on about August the 1st, roughly. Yeah, so right in the middle of the summer. <laughs> and um, we at the Centre for European Reform will be looking at uh, what the EPC does and, and how it evolves. And uh, of course, um, what it means for the European Union, but also for UK-EU relations and for relations in between the European Union and the US, but also other partners like the Western Balkans and Ukraine. Thank you uh, very much, um, Charles. Thank you, Camino. And thank you all very much for listening to a new episode of the Centre for European Reform podcast. Uh, please do subscribe if you like what we do and uh, listen to our podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye from Brussels. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.